Let's turn to Isaiah 53, and as we make our way through the Bible, we'll go through this verse by verse this morning. Verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he will grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness when we see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. On Friday, at sunset in Israel, they began the feast of Passover, and it will continue on for eight days. I'm pretty sure everybody is aware of Passover, but I'm going to cover it anyway briefly. Passover got its name as the last judgment that came upon Egypt. After 400 years of being in bitter bondage and slavery, God raised up Moses. He was 40 years in Egypt, 40 years a shepherd, and then 40 years leading them through the wilderness. He was 120 when he died. But the last of the 10 plagues was the promise of the death of the firstborn upon the Egyptians. And so that the plague would not affect the Jewish people, Moses was told by the Lord that every family should take a yearling, a lamb, actually bring it in the house a couple days so that the kids could actually get attached to it. It had to be without any blemishes. It had to be a male and it had to be one year years old. And then at twilight, they were to kill the lamb, take the blood, take hyssop, and then they were to apply the blood on both sides of their doors and on the lentil. And Moses told them, when the angel of death passes over your house, your firstborn will not be affected. Everybody who did not have the blood, the firstborn in that house died, in all of Egypt. And it was this particular judgment by God that broke Pharaoh, and he says, get out of here. And so we get the word Passover, and it, because death passed over their house and thus set them free by the shedding of the blood of a lamb. Now this was to be commemorated annually when they got into the land. And the Lord told them, every Jewish male, 13 and older, along with the family, would go to Jerusalem and they would worship and observe so that they would never forget what they came out of. That they were brought out of um, Egypt by this mighty work of the killing of an innocent little lamb and his blood being shed. Isaiah chapter 53 is the most descriptive, along with Psalm 22, 
of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And what's interesting to me with this video that was so, it's just great, is um, uh, it's forbidden to be written. It's not that they don't have it in the text, but you will never hear a message from Isaiah 53 ever in a synagogue given by a rabbi. I remember Jesus went to his hometown and he actually took the book of Isaiah, remember? And he opened to Isaiah chapter 61 and he began to quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me uh, to preach good tidings to the poor, to set the captives free and so on and so forth. And then he rolled it all up and said, today in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. This, what we're reading this morning, Isaiah 53, has been fulfilled. And um, as, as we get into it, uh, it breaks up nicely into two sections. Uh, one through nine tells of the suffering of the Messiah when he would come. The last three verses speaks of the satisfaction that the father would have because of his son's sacrifice and that he would bear the sins for many. So the first nine verses are going to talk about his suffering. And the final three about the satisfaction. Matter of fact, that's the word that's used in verse 11. When he shall see the travail of his soul, he'll be satisfied. Now, in studying this week, um, I like, you guys know I like to read McGee. And... Um, Even before we get to verse one, let's make this application, but I'm stealing it from McGee. He puts it it this way. Suffering always precedes satisfaction. Too many folks are trying to take a shortcut to happiness by attempting to avoid all the trying experiences of life. I want to tell you that there's no shortcut to satisfaction. This is the reason I condemn short-term courses that claim They have the answers to all of life's problems and will equip you with the whole armor of God. Well, that's not the way God does it. There is no short route. Even God did not take the short route. He could have avoided the cross and accepted the crown. That was Satan's suggestion. But suffering always comes before satisfaction. Psalm 30 verse 5 says this, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. With that in mind, let's look at the suffering Savior. Let's go back to verse 1 and make our way through this chapter. Verse 1, it's almost got to be a frustration on Isaiah's part as he's writing this. He says, who's going to believe it? Who will believe our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This verse is quoted twice in the New Testament. And again, gang, as we make our way through the Bible, there's no way you can teach through the scriptures and we can't even get past verse one and there's already two fulfillments of verse one in the New Testament. First of all, in John chapter 12, it says, but although he did so many signs before them, they did not believe him that the word of Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, which is spoken, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see, 
lest they would understand and turn their hearts so that I could heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw the glory and he spoke of him. Now, one of the things, my favorite part of this clip that we saw this morning was the guy who, who got gut-level honest when he says, well, obviously it's talking about the Messiah, Yeshua. He says, but whenever I think about it up here, something strange happens. A wall goes up. There's just something, when, it, when they speak his name, it goes up. Well, that's exactly what um, uh, is said here. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts um, to this. Romans tells us that that's going to come to an end when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then all of Israel will be saved. Then the blinders will be lifted. But we're still living in this time where if you try to talk to a Jewish person about Jesus, the walls go up. And um, uh, I I could see it on this person's face and I respect him for you know, just the honesty that he had. All right, so that's one place that it's quoted. Paul quotes Isaiah 53.1 in Romans 10, verse 16. It's preceded um, by people who are preaching the gospel. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not obeyed the gospel For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So here we are, got one verse knocked out, and we already have two fulfillments in the New Testament. Verse 2 tells us he will be despised and rejected by men. He'll be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Well, you know, we look at the, um, Hollywood especially. They look at the outward appearance. But the Bible says God looks at the heart. But men look at, at the outward. But God looks at the heart. There really isn't a description of the Lord that I'm aware of except in his glorified body in the book of Revelation. There we have one. But that's his glorified body. But there's nothing in the New Testament or the Gospels that said, um, Jesus had blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> no, he was an average-looking Jewish man. When you looked at Jesus, you weren't going, well, there's a good-looking guy. That wasn't it. It says here that um, there was no beauty that we should desire him and that he had no form nor comeliness that was there. And um, he was just just an average-looking individual. Uh, Verse 3 tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One of the problems that I have with people who don't teach the whole Bible is, in a lot of cases, in the largest churches in the country, they want to have you leaving church every Sunday morning happy-clappy, with not a care in the world. All your problems gone, just like that. And uh, most of them are motivational speakers. They're not pastors and they're not teachers, but they have some of the biggest churches in the country. I want you to know that um, there are people here watching live stream right now, people here sitting at Calvary Chapel of Appleton, 
and uh, you're going through something that's a grieving process. Maybe you just lost a loved one. Um, Maybe you're just having a tough week and um, it's hardly ever addressed. You need to know that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Matter of fact, we read in Hebrews that the whole idea that he was fully God and fully man, um, the writer of Hebrews said, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in all points as we are. Every temptation that you have ever had, Jesus had had that same temptation except he without sin, which means he was tempted, but he never yielded to the temptation. Good place for an amen. So he wants us to know as we study the scriptures that he's a man of sorrows and that he was acquainted with grief and that he was also despised and rejected. I mean, he's the creator of the universe. He came into his own people, the Jewish people, and in John 1 it said he was in the world and the world was made through him. I mean, that's enough to chew on for the rest of the day right there. He was in the world, and by the way, he made the world and everything else that we can see. And even though he did, the world didn't know him. The world doesn't know its creator. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Fulfilling Isaiah 53, he was despised, and he was rejected. And... um, That's John 1, verses 10 and 11. I'm going to make a 4 through 6 our next stop. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. Um, Didn't mention this in the first service, but as I think about it, he promised the disciples that he was going to send the paraclete, or the promise, and he called him the comforter. That's what the word paracletes means, a comforter. One who comes alongside you and comforts you. And you can be going through the biggest storm or trial in your life and still have a perfect peace through it. So he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. And um, he's, he's with us, thick and thin, you might say like in the fire, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Talk about an illustration, being in the fire but who's in there with him? There's one that looks just like the son of God, Nebuchadnezzar said. So he's with you all, at all times. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded. Now we're getting into the punishment part on the day he was crucified. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. And we can read over this quickly. Or we can slow down and go back to chapter 52, verse 14, which should be on the same page that you're on right now. Verse 14 of 52 says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his vestige was marred more than any man. Now I actually take the Bible seriously, but I also take it literally. And if I'm understanding this correctly, of all the beatings any man has ever gotten, Jesus got the worst one. And his form, more than the sons of men. I don't know, what's it like having all of your beard ripped out? What, what kind of scars are left there? 
what happens when you're blindfolded and the soldiers are punching you as much as they want to, making sport with you. Usually you can roll with a punch, you know, if you see it coming. But if you don't see it coming, you're getting a full impact of that. And they mocked him, and of course it was a crown of thorns. So let's not read over too quickly, he was bruised. Oh, he was bruised. How badly? Fourteen more than any, any other man. That's saying an awful lot right there. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And basically man has done that. Man does what's right in his own eye. Does We say it in our language, do your own thing, man. Whatever turns you on, do what you want to do. Um, that's what sheep are. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we get to the heart of the gospel. Here is where 2 Corinthians 5 comes into play. And in a moment's time, there's no way that I can possibly even begin to describe what happened here. This would be the part in Psalm 22 where he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That moment in time when the sins of the entire world, all people, all time, in a moment's time, how long was it? I don't know. It was between the hours of of 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But somewhere during that time when he made that cry, there was a separation that took place. And every human being's sin, I just think of my own from the time I was a kid and uh, how old I am now. Multiply that times the seven billion that are living on the earth now and how many more billions since uh, Adam and Eve. All the sins at one time being placed on, on. I just think, just, just think of David's sin, just for a little bit. Adultery, to cover his tracks, he kills Uriah. And David said, I could not live with myself with that on my conscience. He says, when I thought about it, my, my bones just dried up. Um, and the joy of the Lord had left him. We're talking one man, two sins. And the intense agony that David describes for us that he went through. Well, then there's all of us. <laughs> And then there's all of the world, and then there's all of all time. And all this was so overwhelming when he realized what was about to take place. The word down here in verse 5, where it says chastisement, in my column it says crushed. And the word Gethsemane, it means crushing. It's where they crushed the olives. And... um, When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he was crushed. Uh, The anxiety, the thought of what was about to take place was so overwhelming to him. The Bible says that he began to sweat great drops of blood. Now, I've been told, I've never seen it personally, but a person can reach that stress point where there's so much pressure on that it crushes, just like grapes that he sweat great drops of blood. And so we have here, Bruce Carroll's gonna be with us for our pastor's conference. And um, of course he has one of that great song, The Great Exchange, one of my favorites. And The Great Exchange is 2 Corinthians 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took my sin. He took your sin. But then the great exchange is he gave me all his righteousness. So now I could have a clean conscience and I could go boldly before God. Um, A lot of people are afraid of God. A lot of people are brought up thinking the next time I do that thing, I just, he's going to squish me like a bug because we know we deserve it. But when we confess our shortcomings, as soon as David said to the prophet uh, when he confronted him with his sin, he confessed it and immediately the prophet said, you shall not die, the Lord has put it away. And all of a sudden everything was fine. Well, there was consequences. There's always consequences for sin, but there's always forgiveness. Good place for an amen. Consequences for David was what? He, he lost a child. And uh, he wept bitterly when, when the child was alive. Uh, whenever I do a funeral for a little child, maybe uh, at what was lost at birth or very shortly thereafter, I, I tell a story about David. Because David fasted and he prayed that the child wouldn't die. And then he did. He gets up and cleans himself off and has something to eat. And they go, what's up with that? His friend said, well, I thought, you know, maybe the Lord would show mercy on me and allow the child to live, but, but he's dead. And then he says this, I will go to him, but he can't come back to me. Now, there's a lot of theology in that. I'll tell you why. First of all, it tells us that there is an age of accountability where God draws a line. It says, now you're accountable for your sins. But there's an age that only God knows where you're innocent. Our own court system understands that if you're not 18, you're not going to be tried as an adult. Everybody with me? Well, on a bigger level. But more than that, he will not come back to me. We had somebody uh, in, in men's prayer. I've had people tell me the same thing, that um, uh, they've seen their lost loved ones. And I have to tell them, no, you haven't. Um, but if you saw anything, the spirit world is real, and I believe demons can manifest themselves. And it's with deception. The Bible says that uh, the devil can turn himself into an angel of light if he wants to, right? But the Bible teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It doesn't say anything about ever coming back here again. And David was one of them that pointed it out. Boy, you guys are getting a lot extra from the first service. You don't know how lucky you are this morning. I'm getting blessed. I hope you are. I don't know. Anyway, um, in, in these verses here, he laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, there's no human being alive that can really grasp the totality of this verse right here. And then in verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Turn with me please to Acts chapter eight in the New Testament. And I'll give you a little background to the story of Philip. Acts chapter eight. Philip was one of the guys who was a deacon. After Pentecost, a whole lot of people got saved, 3,000. They were all Jews. 
and they had to feed them. So they're looking for servants. Yesterday, I was so blessed, I had to finish studying, but I mean, we, the fellowship hall was packed lunchtime with you guys that came out and um, did all this yard work and cleaning and um, basically fulfilling the role that there was a need and it was great to see so many people show up. And um, I took advantage of the free subs. <laughs> and it was just uh, watching the guys and the gals just fellowshipping, loving on each other, and working with their hands. And um, the place looks great and all, all, all that they did. Philip was the same way. He had a gift, though. He wasn't just a servant, but he was an evangelist. As a matter of fact, the first part of Acts chapter 8 is he's in a city in Samaria, and everybody's getting saved. Revival has broken out in Samaria. Matter of fact, even the town sorcerer gets saved, and he wants to be uh, baptized, and, um, and he did. Uh, and in the midst of this great revival, the Lord taps him on the shoulder, and now we're at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward south down the road which goes to Jerusalem, to Gaza. This is desert. Now, if I'm Philip, I'm thinking, this is not a good plan. I mean, all these people just got saved. How about a little follow-up work here? And um, things are happening. There's nothing in Gaza. But he doesn't have that conversation. He doesn't ask why. He simply is obedient to what the Lord told him to do. Now, it's interesting. So he goes, and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her money, all of her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. I've called this message this morning, you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. And I gave it that title, and I had this person in mind when I titled it this morning. This guy comes from Ethiopia, travels all the way to Jerusalem, to worship a God he doesn't know. And now he's on his way home and he's returning, verse 28, and sitting in his chariot. So he's taking a break and he was reading Isaiah the prophet and the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Well, let's just tie a couple dots together here. First of all, he's obedient to something that doesn't make sense. Leave the revival, go to the desert. Doesn't make sense. But he's not told why. Only when he gets there does he get plan B. Not plan B, but what's next on the list. And that is, see that guy over there, Philip? Go near and overtake that chariot. So Philip ran up to him, and he heard him reading, so he must have been reading out loud, Isaiah, and he said, hey, do you have any clue what you're reading? And I like his answer. He says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? He's not Jewish. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb, silent before its shears, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. 
Who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. He just happened to be reading Isaiah 53. We just happened to be studying Isaiah 53 in the middle of Passover. I think that's interesting. And I love it when the Lord gives me those little coincidences that I know full well aren't coincidences. We're simply doing what the Lord wants us to do. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, who does the prophet say this is? Is he talking about himself or is he talking of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and he began at this scripture and he preached Jesus to him. This was so well done, this little video, YouTube thing that we put up this morning. And all, all he asked them to do is here, just read it. What does it say? What do you think it means? Well, it means exactly what it says. And the ones that were there, except for the flippant little girl who thought it would be cool to die rich, she didn't get it at all. <laughs> but everybody else did. And um, what was he doing? He was opening it up, and it was clearly saying that this is how the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be a suffering servant when he comes. And they're not taught that in synagogue. But Philip does the same thing, and he began, and he preaches Jesus to him. And as they went down the road, they came with some water. Now, between verses 35 and 36, what's implied is that there was a whole lot more talking going on here because he not only explained the plan of salvation, what you must do, but he says, and if you do that and you believe this, then to be obedient, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Those that believe, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? So he explained that to him. He said, well, Jesus gave us his charge. And now the next thing, if you believe, is that you can be baptized. So they're trotting along on their chariot. And they went down the road, verse 36, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? Here's the condition for baptism. The Bible does not teach infant baptism. The Bible requires that you believe first and then baptism, without exception. Just like there has to be suffering before satisfaction, there also has to be conversion before baptism. So infant baptism is something that was made up by the Roman Catholic Church, 4506 AD, but it wasn't a part of the original teachings of Scripture. And here was a condition. If you believe with all your heart, then you can. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and Eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. Now stop and take that in. (laughs) I mean, imagine getting baptized, and all of a sudden the guy baptizing you is gone. Has that ever happened before? And the answer is yes. Not at a baptism, though. You see, Elijah was told that he was going to be taken to heaven. And Elisha, his apprentice, he says, I tell you what, I'm going to be leaving soon. The Lord showed me. He says, "Uh, got anything you'd like? He goes, oh, yeah. I want a double portion of what you have. And Elijah said, you don't know what you're asking for. But I tell you what, 
if you see me being taken to heaven today, then you're gonna get your prayer request answered. No sooner had he said it, than a chariot of fire came down, caught up Elijah, and Elisha saw the whole thing. So he takes a mantle that came drifting down, he went to the Jordan River, says, where is the God of Elijah? And he smacks it, waters part. He got his prayer answered. Can you imagine this guy here getting baptized by Philip and all of a sudden, poof, he got beamed up just like that. And then we read that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Can you imagine getting back to Ethiopia? And he says, let me tell you how I got baptized. (laughs) And Philip was found at Ozetus. Now, if you're in Gaza, um, Ozetus is right before you get to Capernaum. It's where we begin our trips to Israel. And passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And we read later in, in the New Testament that he settles in there. And I don't blame him. I mean, the, 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 the uh, turquoise, blue-green water off of Caesarea it was one of the major port, uh, ports in the ancient world. Absolutely gorgeous. And uh, I could see why he wanted to live there. And he raised his, he had uh, several girls that had the gift of prophecy. So here in Acts 8, again, you cannot teach through God's word without seeing prophecy being fulfilled. And here, um, Philip is explaining Isaiah chapter 53. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. We left off in verse 7. Verse 8 said he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? And he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was smitten. So again, we're told the reason. He was crucified. The word there in verse 8 is the word cut off. And um, it reminded me of Daniel chapter 9. Matter of fact, in my column, it has Daniel 9 verse 26. And I just automatically assumed that the same Hebrew word in Isaiah 53 verse 8 in Daniel 9 verse 26 would be the same Hebrew word. So I looked it up. I found out it wasn't. The one here in verse 8 is in the Hebrew translated gazar. It means to eliminate or to kill or to be cut down. But I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9 and I'm doing it for two reasons. And let me take you to verse 26. Of course, 24 and 25, most of us are familiar with this, tells us to the day that the Messiah would come, April 6, 32 AD. But in verse 26, talking about when he does come, it says in verse 26, Messiah will be cut off. Now that Hebrew word is not gazar, but it's karat. And when I looked up the meaning, it means to exterminate, to be destroyed, cut off, executed. So the word is that the Messiah will be executed. That's, they're almost identical, but they are two different words. But then it says, but not for himself. Um, Isaiah 53 said he was cut off, but also not for himself. And here, also not for himself. Now what 
they did that I thought was so wise on behalf of this young man ministering to Jewish people who do not read or have never even studied Isaiah chapter 53. This was the best hook that he could have put in his witnessing. He made this statement. He said, the Messiah has to come before the temple is destroyed. Where does he get that? We get it two places in the Bible, and one of them is right here. First it says, the Messiah will be cut off, and then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince who is to come were the Romans, and they're the ones, and then Jesus says in Luke 19, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you under myself like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't come. Now this is what's gonna happen. Your enemy is gonna come and build walls around you, surround you in on every side. And they're gonna take, and there's not gonna be one stone left upon another in the temple. And um, this will happen because you did not know the time of your coming. So what Jesus said there was 32 AD, 38 years later, 70 AD, which they mentioned in the video clip, the temple was destroyed. When I go to Israel and I don't have a Jewish guide, everybody's always trying to witness to our Jewish guys that aren't saved. And this is their pat answer. They say, well, you know, (laughs) in their Jewish way, well, you know, you believe he came already, we believe he's about to come. But what this sharp young man clearly showed from scripture is that the Messiah in Isaiah 53, that they admit, Daniel tells us that he has to come before the temple is destroyed, which means he's already been here. And I think it's a great witnessing tool, gang, if you can get this under your belt and you have friends that say, well, we're waiting for him to come. No, no, no. He already came and we can prove it. Uh, 500 people saw him after after the resurrection. All right, let's go back to um, Isaiah 53. So that word cut off there in verse, in verse eight, um, the cross-reference there, Daniel 9. All right, verse nine. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his, uh, I'm sorry, verse nine. And they, and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. When they were trying Jesus, Pilate did it three or four times and came out and said, I find no crime in this man. And he looked for a way out. And Pilate, after examining him, said, there's no violence here. Jesus uh, um, was rebuked by Herod and Caiaphas. And he says, well, what are you doing that for? What bad thing have I done that I deserve this? And they could not answer him because he never did anything bad. He only did good. The Bible said Jesus went around doing good all the time. And now we read here about his death with the rich. Well, in Matthew Matter of fact, this is in all four of the Gospels, what I'm about to quote, but I'll read the one from Matthew 27 about dying 
and being buried with the rich. Matthew 27, verse 57, now when evening had come, they came a, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. And reading all four gospel accounts, which I did this week, this is the only one that mentions, we assume that he was a believer, but here it tells us straight out that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, laid it in a new tomb, which he had hewed out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb, and he departed. And we have another prophecy being fulfilled, Isaiah 53, verse 9, but with the rich at his death. We find that uh, that literally happened and was fulfilled by the Lord himself. I did mention in the first service that right next to Golgotha, um, over the years, uh, the Brits bought that piece of property. And to this day, British tour guides take you through the garden tomb. But in the middle of it, to show you that this was a very wealthy man who had this tomb, there is this uh, cavern that was carved out of solid stone. And I'm not exaggerating, it is as big as our sanctuary in this part here, as high, maybe even higher, down. And that was the storage that they had just for the water. And then they had a wine press that was there, and uh, they've created it into another beautiful garden. And it's there that you have what we call Gordon's Calvary and the garden tomb. Many of you have visited there and have actually had the the experience of of being able actually to see it. And um, so when we read here in verse 9 that it was with the rich, um, Joseph of Arimathea was rich, and the place that Jesus was laid was a very costly tomb that was owned by a rich man. All right, verse 10 now changes. The verses that we've read thus far talk about his suffering. And the most important thing, that the iniquity of all people for all time would be placed upon him. Now when we get to verse 10, 11, and 12, the last three verses of this chapter, and the closing thoughts here is the satisfaction of the Father because of what took place here. Let's read it, all of it, and I'll come back and comment on each one individually. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, And he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the 
transgressors. Let's go back to verse 10. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. His own son, the the Lord wanted out, but he said, Father, if this is the only way, then I accept it. And there wasn't any other way. Um, John was the first one that pointed out that he would be the one who would be the offering. First time that the Holy Spirit came down at Jesus' baptism, he says, there he is. That's the Lamb of God, and he's going to take away the sins of the world. And that was John's whole job right there. The greatest man who ever lived never did one miracle. I'm one. But he had the greatest privilege of saying, there is the Son of God, and his purpose for being here is to take away the sins of all of mankind. We read that this can only happen one time. Hebrews chapter 10 says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, the first song we sang this morning was called Justified. And that justification, what we mean by that is the same phrase we always use, just as though you've never sinned. And that's how God looks at you. But the word here is referring to in verse 10 It's as we're being uh, sanctified. What verse is there? And prolonged his days. Uh, Justified many. Oh, satisfied. It's the process that we're going through right now, this process of sanctification. But in uh, verse 11, 10 and 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. When Jesus did die on the cross, his final word was to tell us die, which means paid in full, or it is finished. The work is done. And I have a debt that can never be paid. You have a debt. It can never be paid. It's the debt that we call sin. And it has to be paid in full in order for the Father to be satisfied. Good place for an amen. Amen. And this is what it accomplished. The suffering always is followed by now the satisfaction. And here we're clearly told, first of all, it, it pleased the Lord that he was bruised. That's weird thinking to us. Uh, because we lose a loved one, and uh, we, we grieve. But every time my mom and dad passed away, I, I grieved, I cried just like any human being would. But the Lord always gives me the same scripture. Blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Amen? It's a blessed thing. Well, why? Be one reason, tax season, no more taxes. Um, uh, no more Crazy, rainy, white out, snow, rain, snow all in the same day. Um, no more mosquitoes, no more trials. Those things are gone forever. So the only way this could be accomplished, the only way that the father could say, I am satisfied, is because I saw my own son that I loved, and I watched him go through this travail, and I watched him 
willingly do this. And um, he didn't have to. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to pick it up again, too. Matter of fact, he proved that one day when they came to arrest him in Gethsemane. And Jesus comes out. Judas kisses him. He says, hey, who are you 400 guys looking for? He said, Jesus. He says, I am. And they all fell down. Don't you think that would have been a good time to go home? I would have. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I've got to put something straight here. You guys, I'm letting you do this because no man takes it. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it back up again. And when Jesus said, it is finished, then he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He has the power to say, spirit, you can go home now. Job's done. Paid in full. Dad is satisfied. And that's what we read here. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my servant shall justify many. Not all, but many, because not everybody's going to accept him. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. Now, another prophecy being fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. Luke 22, verse 37. For I say to you that which is written must be accomplished in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, where in the prophecies does it say he was numbered with his transgressors? Well, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Again. You can't teach through the Bible without having prophecy being fulfilled here, 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 everywhere. And so here we have another one, and then, of course, it ends the chapter, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. Um, Let's look at one more verse in the New Testament, the story of Mary, Mary and Martha. It's in Luke chapter 10. And we'll close things up. Luke 10, picking it up in verse 38. Jesus stayed at Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house many times. If he was from the Galilee, you'd you'd follow the the Jordan River Valley down to Jericho. And then you'd begin the, the road up. And Jerusalem's on a hill. And before you get... Over the hill, there's this little village called Bethany. And that's where this story takes place in Luke 10, verse 38. And again, the part of the message that um, I titled it, you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. Here's a good example of that in closing. Verse 38 says, Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village and a certain woman whose name was Martha, welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Doesn't that sound like a sister? Talk to another one. Therefore, tell her to help me. And then Jesus answered and said to her, 
Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I mean, no, no, no. Martha, Martha. <laughs> I was reading that this morning. I couldn't get that out of my head. I said, honey, on the Brady Bunch, is it Marsha or Martha? I can't remember. But I'm thinking Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. Gang, this is so important because, let's face it, we live in a pressure cooker world. And there's getting to be more pressure, especially on Christians, especially if you don't want to compromise. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, and I'm not going to take it away from her. David said, I'd rather spend one day in the house of the Lord than a thousand anywhere else. One day in your presence. Gang, we have to have our priorities. Yeah, we're busy. We always can have something to do. But unless, as Curtis convicted all of us in a very loving way last Sunday, didn't he? By saying, your priorities gotta be straight, guys. You gotta have your devos in the morning. And church, I don't care if you're on vacation or not. Find a church and go to it. And um, um, Bible studies, that's the one thing that, that's necessary. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was anxious, wasn't she? And Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. Mary was one of the few that actually got it when Jesus was um, uh, being buried. And um, the reason she got it when the other disciples didn't is because she was listening. She was sitting and she was listening. And when we sit and we allow the word of God to penetrate our heart, Jesus said it's like taking seed and just throwing it out there and it's gonna land on different kinds of ground. Soft ground, rocky ground, thorny ground, and good ground. And then he says, the ground is your heart. Martha had the good ground. I think Marsha, Marsha, <laughs> slip, Martha had an anxious spirit and the Lord was just trying to get her attention. And he, whenever you get your name called twice, when I, had, when I was in trouble, it, was, it wasn't Dwight. It was Dwight Dean Doville. I mean, all, all three put together just so that we're clear. I knew I was in trouble when I got all three of them. And basically the Lord's saying, what are you so troubled about? Why are, you, why are you fearful? This is what's important. And Mary has chosen that good part, and I'm not going to take it away from her. Again, there's nothing more important than what you're doing right now. We're here to worship the Lord, amen? But we're also told, I want to be like Paul and be able to say, we've studied it all. Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God. And when you do, you're going to run across little nuggets that you've never seen before. You see how it all fits together perfectly. 40 different authors over 1,500 years of time coming up with the same story and fulfilling prophecies, speaking things hundreds if not thousands of years before they were fulfilled, and every single one of them was fulfilled because Jesus said they had to be right down to the very jot and tittle. Amen? Good place to leave it. Let's say we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through Isaiah. Lord, I would pray for any that really do have that seeking heart like that Ethiopian man. And I pray you'd send him a Philip. I pray you'd create that divine appointment and that they would not only have a desire 
to read it as, as new Christians, but be willing to be taught just like the Ethiopian was. And so I pray for any this morning, Lord, that aren't born again, that you draw them to yourself, reveal yourself to them in a powerful way. Bless our week, go before the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.